Daniel chapter 4 will be our passage tonight. I'm going to do something different uh, than how I've normally been teaching through a narrative like this. Normally I uh, do what homileticians, preachers call the read and ramble approach, um, (laughs) where we read the text and talk about as we go through the the evening, but tonight I'm going to do it differently. Tonight I'm going to read all of Daniel chapter 4 just to start us. Uh, it's, it's not an insanely long chapter. It's 37 uh, verses, I think. Yeah, 37 verses. So this is not 37 verses of Romans. If it was 37 verses of Romans, we would do it over 37 weeks. Um, this is a narrative. All the f- passage fits together. Before we read it, though, keep in mind that this is a, a book-ended passage, uh, if you're outlining it, this would be an A, B, C, B, A kind of passage. In the middle of this is Nebuchadnezzar's repentance, but your, uh, or the call for him to repent is what's in the middle of this chapter. So it starts and ends. This is all written after these events happened. So the chapter is going to start and end with the hymn that Nebuchadnezzar wrote about what happens here. So we switch from Daniel, who was apparently narrating chapter 3, we, even though he was not mentioned in it. We switch from that to chapter 4 is told from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. He's introduced in chapter 4, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth. And so what follows from verse 1 to the end of chapter 4 is all Nebuchadnezzar's words. So that sets us apart by the rest of Scripture. It's a part of the Old Testament written by a Gentile and uh, inspired, inerrant, infallible, fit for life and godliness. So that's what we find ourselves with Nebuchadnezzar writing part of the Bible. You would have never thought this would happen at the end of chapter 3. Because <laughs> chapter 3 ended with him um, not converted, uh, but exalted in his own mind. And now in chapter 4, he's going to be writing uh, his version of events. So he writes, this, he writes a hymn to introduce it in verse 3, and you're going to see that hymn again at the end of the chapter, but a slightly longer version of it. It's the same words in both places. He wrote it after his conversion. It's just how he introduces his description of this. So let me read Nebuchadnezzar's words for us as we go tonight. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Now it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Uh, I'll just pause there real quick. The language here, it sounds a lot like some of the phrases that are in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 97, Psalm 107, the whole start of book five of the Psalms have these kind of phrases in it. And you think, where would Nebuchadnezzar have learned the Psalms? He wasn't doing his quiet time in the Psalms of Daniel or anything, or of David. Um, So I think likely he heard Daniel and his friends singing these or studying these around him, which I find encouraging. That That's the only explanation I have, that he he heard them singing the Psalms and he's learned some of them. I'm sure he went from disbelieving them to now believing them and now even using them himself. And that's a pretty neat pattern to follow here. his, uh, his dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. As is typical, I'd like to imagine an emperor. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought to me. They might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. This is almost like a repeat of what we saw earlier in chapter 2. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans... The astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. 
he who is named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, oh Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. So this is different than chapter two. Remember chapter two, he said uh, earlier at the book, he said, you've got to tell me the dream. Uh, chapter one, and then you got you got to tell me the dream. Um, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell it to me, so I know you're, what you're saying is legitimate. Well, here he's going to go ahead and tell Daniel the dream because Daniel's already proved himself able to interpret it. Verse 10: The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these: I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. It's worth pausing here to remember what his previous dream was. It was the statue, remember, with the gold head, and then you worked your way, way down to the chest and the, the loins and the legs and finally the feet of clay, and you were working through from his empire to the, the Greek empire to the, the Roman empire all the way into the, the Persians and to the Greeks and the Romans, all the way into the clay feet of democracy there. Do you remember what happened to that statue? It was obliterated by the rock of Christ is what happened to it. The rock showed up and beat it to death. So, and, ne- and Nebuchadnezzar was told, you're the king, you're the head of gold. So he already has this concept of him being exalted above the whole earth. He's the head of gold. All these other empires are going to come after him. They're going to be subservient to him, but he is the golden head. He is in charge. And so now you find this dream of a massive tree towering over the earth, giving shade to the other nations. It's not a stretch to understand that this would be Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a hard dream to interpret. Nebuchadnezzar should have been able to figure it out. What's the problem? Well, the problem comes out of what happens to the tree next. Now, obviously, the, the birds of the nations coming and getting in its shade, Jesus is going to use the same analogy. What this means here, Nebuchadnezzar is giving peace to the world. He was a, uh, a kind emperor. He brought peace and stability to a war-torn world. Um, I mean, he persecuted the Jews. That's true. <laughs> But uh, the idea here is that the nations had a rest, a bit of a respite in his shade. But God is going to interject here. Verse 13, I saw the visions in my head as I lay in bed. Behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. So before we had a rock, now we have some kind of angel, or he just saw the, the one like the Son of God in the fire. Maybe it's that kind of vision again. He proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from underneath it, the birds away from its branches, but leave the stump, <laughs> leave its roots in the earth, bound up with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the fields. So that happened to the tree right there. <laughs> Earlier, the statue got beat to death with a rock. Now Nebuchadnezzar is the giant tree and he gets chopped obliterated, the leaves peeled off of him, the branches broken away. So if you're the interpreter and he tells you, this is my dream, what are you going to tell Nebuchadnezzar? Again, we can, we can figure this out. Nebuchadnezzar, you're an exalted king and God's going to destroy you. That's obviously what the dream means. Do you want to be the one that tells Nebuchadnezzar that? <laughs> uh, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel, you come in, you tell Nebuchadnezzar because Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know. Obviously, Daniel's the gifted one. We're out. Um, good luck, Daniel. We'll pray for you. And that's, that's what happens here. I got a notice from my uh, lawn care company that the sprinklers were going to freeze last week. And so they told me to get an old pillow and go out and wrap up the, the box in our yard. So I got an old pillow. Just 
and wrapped it up with like duct tape and put a trash bag over it so that the rain would fall on it and it would freeze. And so now if you would come by my house, you'd see a pillow wrapped to some sprinkler exchange box with a trash bag and duct tape around it. It looks tacky would be the word that I would use. Um, it doesn't look secure. I can't imagine that doing any good at all. Uh, but that's what they said. They're the professionals. This is Nebuchadnezzar's vision, that he's going to be chopped down, but a stump will be left in the middle of the grass. It'll be wrapped in an iron band so that the rain can fall on it and it can be exposed and humiliated before the world. That's the vision. Um, he'll be with the dew of the heaven, verse 15. His portion will be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Verse 16, let his mind be changed from a man's. Let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time or seven years pass over. I'm afraid we're going to see later. This sentence is by the decree of the washers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream... I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's preaching to you now. He's not still talking to Daniel. He's going back to you. I saw this, and you, O Belshazzar, to Daniel here, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. In other words, no worming out of this one, Daniel. And Daniel, you see the grace of God all over his answer here, whose name was Belshazzar. He was dismayed for a little while. His thoughts alarmed him. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the king answered and said to Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. So Belshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So this, what a gracious answer. I mean, this is obviously a bad vision for Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel introduces it with, this is what God says, but this is only for those who hate you. They're the ones that want to see this come to pass. They're the ones that want to see you ruins like this. It's only for those who hate you. That true, that tree, verse 20, which grew and became strong, so its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave a stump of the roots of the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time or seven years pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the most high which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. There may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Well, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So a year goes by, and that's what's so interesting in this story. He's told that this will happen but then a full year goes by. And what do you think is going on in his head during this time? Yeah, I think he thinks he escaped it. Like this was the command. And I'm sure he cleaned up his behavior for some of those th that time. I mean, if a prophet came to you who already interpreted one of your dreams and said, you know, if you don't repent, you're going down, like graze with animals kind of down. You would be on pretty good behavior for the next few minutes, weeks, months. 
but not quite years. So a year goes by. He's walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered, (laughs) just his own question, I guess, and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? I mean, that's about as arrogant as you get right there, looking in the mirror. Man, how handsome you are. Mirror, mirror on the wall. I'm the most handsome king of all, kind of line here. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. I mean, as if God was waiting for this, because God was waiting for this. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This, again, is attested in secular literature. Historians describe Nebuchadnezzar going insane from the roof of his, his uh, palace, just like Daniel describes, losing his, his mind and going out to the, the fields. And the kingdom was held in kind of a custody period until eventually the Babylonians crushed it. But we get the full, uh, I mean, the Babylonians um, lost, to the, lost it to the Persians, which will happen in chapter 5. But we get the backstory here. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar in verse 33. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with dew of heaven. His hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. That's intense. Uh, Ryan Francis and I were driving back from our pastor's retreat a couple weeks ago, and we almost hit a bald eagle. Um, we saw him at a distance. He was trying to pull a trash bag off the side of the road. Uh, and he's trying to, they, one of those community service trash bags, you know, the big blue ones that they clean the side of the road with, and we saw the eagle, and we thought, that looks like a bald eagle, and he disappeared, and then we were right back next to it, he comes out of the tree, grabs the trash bag, pulls it up right in front of our car, and uh, it's too heavy for him, he lets it go, we just barely missed it, um, but almost hit the eagle. Uh, we got a bird's eye view of of the talons were incredible and they were all extended because they were grabbing onto a trash bag. Um, insane. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is like right now. He's, I mean, don't picture that he just didn't file his nails. They're grown long. They're, they're curly kind of image here. His hair is as long as, as eagle feathers. <laughs> okay. And I mean, he's, he's out of his mind, literally living off in the woods. At the end of the days, that would be the end of the seven years. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And here's his hymn again. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hands or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. I was established in my kingdom. He came back to in control of his kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. His kingdom grew. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right. His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the story of Nebuchadnezzar's radical conversion. As I mentioned earlier, in terms of conversion, this has got to rank up towards the top of the most outrageous stories of conversion in the Bible. I mean, I think, when I think of, I have a, I have a top four list, um, the top four most unlikely conversions. I think of Naaman, he's the Syrian 
general, the Syrian commander, 2 Kings chapter 5, who's struck with leprosy, who gets converted through the ministry of Elijah. I think of Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33, the worst king Israel ever had, who gets soundly converted. You remember when he comes back to Jerusalem, he goes back in the temple and he starts throwing all the idols out over the wall that he put in there a few months earlier. You think of Saul, Acts chapter 9, on his way to, to martyr Christians, and he gets struck by, by light and converted. And you have Nebuchadnezzar here. What's interesting about Nebuchadnezzar, he is not your typical atheist. He's not even your typical guy like Naaman, Manasseh, or Saul. You know, Saul had religious conver- uh, convictions. Manasseh was an idol worshiper. Naaman was, you know, for practical purposes, really agnostic or atheist, I guess. You know, we live in a culture today that is filled with atheism, the, you know, the modern atheism of There's, there is no God and I hate him. <laughs> I don't believe that God exists and I don't like the one that does. <laughs> That's the, kind of the normal American version of atheism. That's not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is different. Nebuchadnezzar is not, there's no God and I hate him. Nebuchadnezzar is, there is a God, I'm just stronger than him. That's Nebuchadnezzar. There is a God, I'm just more powerful than he is. Daniel, your God is cute and powerful, but, and, I, and remember, in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar told everybody to worship God. And Nebuchadnezzar. He has no problem believing in God, he just exalts himself above him. And that's the, the story here. And this is the man that gets converted. Perhaps you've heard the old joke of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson on a camping trip. And during the night, Holmes says, Watson, look in the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson says, countless, countless stars, millions and millions of them. Holmes says, what does that tell you? And you've read any of Sherlock Holmes' books, you know how he would answer. Astronomically, it tells me there's millions of galaxies, billions of planets. Theologically, it tells me God is great and we're small. Meteorologically, it tells me we have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Sherlock? And Sherlock says it. Somebody stole our tent, is what it tells me. (laughs) That's what you find here with Nebuchadnezzar. Somebody stole his tent. (laughs) He's not able to count the stars at this point. He's he's out of his mind. And he becomes a picture then of the power of sin. Let me give you an outline as we go through this tonight. I may have made up this word, but four lycanthropic truths. (laughs) Lycanthropy is the uh, psychological disorder where somebody grazes with the animals. Uh, somebody thinks that they are like an animal. They exhibit dog-like behavior. Uh, I read a journal of English psychology this week from the 1700s, and the most common lythanthropic or lythancampic, I don't know how the word would be, feature back then was dog imitation. Howling, barking, scavenging like a dog. Nebuchadnezzar goes more down the ox and eagle road, I suppose. And it becomes a picture for us. I'm going to call these lycanthropic truths. Four truths that you learn about sin is what they're all going to be about from this chapter. Really, this incredible chapter, one of the most unbelievable conversions in Scripture. And we see this here. First, sin wrecks your life. And the first truth is that sin wrecks your life. And you can say this even more specific. Sin makes you animalistic. Sin turns you in to an animal. There's, of course, a a distinction among God's creation that people are not animals. Uh, They were made on the sixth day. Human beings were Adam and Eve were made on the same day as many of the animals, but Adam and Eve were set apart from the animals. And that's the whole point of the scene in Genesis 2. The animals all come by Adam and Eve. 
or by Adam, and it's very clear there is no helper suitable for him. He has nothing in common with his animals. There's no relationship there. I mean, they can make good pets. They'll eventually make good food, but they don't make good, a good helpmeet. They can plow your field, but you can't have a relationship with them. They're just categorically different. Now, what sin undoes, what sin does is it undoes that distinction. Sin comes into your life, and sin corrodes and erodes the distinction between mankind and animals. It merges the two. It makes you like an animal. This is the confession of the psalmist, Psalm 73, who says when he was questioning why God let the wicked prosper, you remember he then goes into the temple, he sees the end of the wicked, that they're on their way to hell. He repents for questioning God. He silences his mouth, and then when he opens it again, he says, I was like a beast before you. He realizes that by questioning God's goodness in letting the wicked prosper, he was speaking like an animal. I think that what that means is that he was ignorant of surroundings, ignorant of divine truth. An animal doesn't understand the sovereignty of God. An animal doesn't understand the, the meticulous sovereignty of God, the God ordains the affairs of the world. Animals live by instinct. People ought not to. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 Solomon says that those who live for the lust of the flesh are like animals. They indulge what they want. Animals lack self-control. They lack self-control. They're not capable of thought. We have a cat right now we're trying to train. We're using a water bottle to spray it when he scratches things or climbs the Christmas tree, but we've decided he's cute on the top of the Christmas tree now, so he's allowed to stay as their little star on the top of the tree. We give up. This is not a reasoning animal. Um, the water bottle, now she can, she's scared of the water bottle and runs away, but she has lost the ability to reason. Sin does that to you. It erodes your connection between cause and effect. It corrupts your understanding that you sin, bad things happen to you, but giving into the sin erodes that basic distinction. That's what Solomon means in Ecclesiastes 3. Ephraim in Hosea 7 is compared to a dove, and they don't, it doesn't mean that Ephraim is innocent. It means that Ephraim is silly, scared at the slightest thing. An enemy is on the horizon. Ephraim scatters like a dove. False teachers are compared to dogs in Philippians chapter 3. They howl, they bark, they bite, they devour. Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon again, says greed makes you like a lion. Greed turns you into a lion. And what that means is that greed makes you able to destroy. Greed takes you off. Lions will destroy animal after animal. They won't slow down. And greed does that to you. It makes you harmful. And you just, you don't care who you run over because of your greed. Jesus says the hypocrites are like vipers, Matthew 23. Or like goats in Matthew 25. And what does it mean that non-believers are like goats? Right now, the screen on my computer when I boot up is a tree with a bunch of goats in it, real live goats in an African tree able to stand on the branches. Madison looks at it today and says, why are goats in trees? I don't know. Goats are not reasonable creatures. <laughs> One of them went up there and the rest followed, I guess. Goats stink, they smell, and most importantly, they're free from the love of God in Christ. Sin does that to you then you're not even aware of it. Understand what Nebuchadnezzar is acting out right here, it is a visual demonstration of what sin does to you. Now God just removed the constraints from Nebuchadnezzar and let it run its course. So where he is acting in this sense literally like the animals, but every one of us, sin has that same potent effect on every single one of us. It attacks, it corrodes, it destroys, it melts us down. 
It exposes us. Sin wrecks your life. This is why the Bible says it's a sin to be unequally yoked in marriage. Because what fellowship does light have with darkness? Uh, The animals weren't fit to be married to Adam. So why would a Christian marry a non-Christian if sin makes them animalistic? It destroys your life. Actually, sin is worse than the beast's. Because beasts, even in their sin, still have an ear for the voice of, of God. You think of the, the cow that walks away, the heifer that walks away from her, her, her bleeding calves in 1 Samuel to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. I mean, even animals have the capacity to obey God when God commands them to do something. The ravens will bring Elijah food. Sinners, in a sense, are even more debased than that, unable to heed even the basic expressed commands of God. Cut off from the love of, of God in Christ... Jesus didn't die for the animals. And people who refuse to repent from their sins find themselves cut off even from the love of God as expressed in Christ. That's where Nebuchadnezzar finds himself, roaming with the animals. You see the common grace of the world gone from him, the restraints of government that he used to put in place gone from him, houses gone from him, the service of animals as designed by God in the Garden of Eden before sin gone from him. Every moment of grace taken from him. This is what sin does. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, it's dramatic, but understand that every sin has this ingredient baked in, packed in. And when you give in a sin, this is what it looks like. So first, sin wrecks your life. I always think of Solomon before I go on. I mean, not Solomon. I always think of Samson in this. You think, how how could he fall for that so many times? (laughs) How could he fall for that? Oh, here's my secret. Oh, you acted on it. Who could have seen that coming? (laughs) But sin makes you stupid. It does. It just makes you unable to reason. It makes you like an animal. Secondly, sin has no earthly hope or cure. Sin has no earthly hope or cure. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar finds himself. What do you do with a Nebuchadnezzar who's out there in the trees grazing? How do you handle him? What if he found a Nebuchadnezzar? What if there was Nebuchadnezzar today? One of the great uh, mysteries of psychology is the decline of lycanthropy today. It's very unusual. Now, it used to be one of the more common uh, diagnosed psychiatric diseases, but now it's, it's uncommon, unheard of really now. What do you do with it if you find it? If your wife and your husband is out grazing in the backyard, what do you do with them? I read a uh, a book written by a psychologist, Dr. Montaneu G. Barker, who described what would happen to Nebuchadnezzar today. First, he said, his wife would probably come first. <laughs> his wife would come to the doctor and say, ah, my husband's outside grazing like the animals. The doctor would probably say, okay, bring him in. <laughs> bring him in. If you went to the hospital, a team would be put together, probably beginning with a neurosurgeon. First step would be do a scan here, see if Nebuchadnezzar's a tumor, because a tumor could explain this. Pushing down, you would, you would see this in a, in a CT scan or whatever. You'd be able to operate or do some kind of treatment on the tumor, and that's your chance for hope. But in this case, Nebuchadnezzar goes through the scan clear. There's no tumor in his head. Okay? What next? Dr. Barker says next up would be the, the psychiatrist who would make some kind of cocktail of drugs for him. The goal of this would be to get him to function in some kind of minimalistic way, like to be able to put him in some kind of house now where there would be food and there would be shelter and there would be safety for him. 
Um, at this point, the drugs are designed to control and restrain and deaden his, his behavior, and they're not designed with a cure. The drugs would be given to him with the hope that that would cure him of lycanthropy. It would just be given to him to get him to not harm himself, to not get struck by lightning or hit by a car would be the idea. From there would become the psychologist who would develop a treatment plan with him, who would develop some kind of path forward, try to get to the, the causes of this or try to get to a way to think about this properly, depending on the psychologist school of thought. Again, there would be no discussion of a cure for this. Some kind of psychological or psychiatric disease like this is not, in a sense, curable. Um, there's not, you know, it's, <laughs> this is not attributed to serotonin that can be adjusted in the brain and fixed. There's no sense at all in which this can be cured medically. And be handed over to a, a social worker to find him a place to live, to make sure he has food and shelter. There'd be a case manager who would sit in over this to make sure the social worker and the psychologist are playing nice with each other and have his best interests in mind. The word that would be used more than any other word would be manage. You've got to manage this. You can't be out with the grass. Dr. Barker writes, quote, lycanthropy, a condition frequently mentioned in earlier times, often linked with hydrophobia, in which sufferers are believed to imitate dogs and wolves. Its decline into oblivion in the 17th century was due partly to a more widespread recognition of the symptoms of mental illness and partly to better community care and partly to the discouragement of the mental facilities. They were put in usually dungeons in England back then that prevented the insane from walking abroad. That quote actually was not Dr. Barker. That was Richard Hunter in a book called 300 Years of Psychiatry, 1535 to 1860, where he describes how this was treated. And what's missing from this team? Daniel is missing from this team. It's Daniel, somebody who can speak to sin in this person's life. Again, there's no earthly here. There's no earthly hope for a person in this kind of condition. There's no way to, to fix this. There's only minimal hope to manage this. Uh, when I was a chaplain with the LA County Sheriff's Department, one of the stops on the tour, you know, we do a three-day shift. You do a ride-along, and you go to the jail, and you would do the psych ward ministry. And you go to the, the, the psych ward ministry, and no concept of hope in that place. There's management. There's the padded walls. There's high medication and preaching the gospel in that kind of place and trying to appeal to people. That's, that's what it's like. There's no, in an earthly sense, any kind of, of hope at all. As far as Nebuchadnezzar's illness is concerned, this is a, a different book by Dr. Ida Masselpine. Ida Masselpine. She writes this, as far as Nebuchadnezzar's illness is concerned, the features are a fairly acute onset of insanity with the apparent delusional idea that he was an animal. Okay? The length of time that he was unwell is not clear, but he also seems to have had a spontaneous remission and returned to sanity and changed his way of life and his outlook subsequently. This kind of history is much more typical of depressive illness with relatively acute onset delusional beliefs of a morbid nature. And in the days before drugs and ECT, most such illnesses had a spontaneous remission within a period of time, one, two, and occasionally more years. The person who recovered would recover a complete insight as did Nebuchadnezzar, apparently. Apparently, my favorite word in that diagnosis. What's missing from this team is a Daniel to speak to the heart issues. Now, if there is a Daniel on this team, if there is somebody with lycanthropic traditions or some kind of other mental illness, and there is a Daniel on the team, does that mean the person would be cured or healed? If you have a pastor dealing with somebody with mental illness, does that mean that there is hope for a cure? This person would be healed as long as he has spiritual truth spoken to him? No. Because Nebuchadnezzar had a Daniel. <laughs> Don't overlook the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel with him this whole time and still grazed with the animals for seven years. Daniel was unable 
to speak truth down into Nebuchadnezzar's heart to rescue him from this. These kind of diseases and illnesses often have no earthly hope. They often have no early cure, earthly cure. I'm using the word often intentionally here. They're often like that. There's often no path forward except management, trying to cope with it. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that all mental illness is a result of sin, but a lot of it is. And certainly Nebuchadnezzar's is. It doesn't mean that mental illness is not a real thing. I've, I've had people say, oh, you know, some Christians say mental illness is not a real thing. No, it's certainly a real thing. You know, you have a heart, your heart can be sick. You have a brain, your brain can be sick, right? But it doesn't mean that sin is disconnected. Or to say it positively, sin is often the cause of mental illness. And certainly it is the case with Nebuchadnezzar. You know how I know that? Because Daniel tells him that. Daniel tells him, if you keep on your track, Nebuchadnezzar, you keep on sinning, you keep on boasting, you keep on being arrogant, you watch and see what God will do with you. You will not be pleased. You will not be pleased. Well, sin has no earthly hope or cure. Thirdly, sin's power is broken through repentance. Sin's power can be broken through repentance. And this is one of the most majestic verses in this. Look back at verse 27. So I mentioned this is the center of the, this chapter. This chapter follows an A, B, C, B, A kind of pattern here with the psalm at the beginning and the end, the dream bracketed here, the prediction, the fulfillment in the middle of this, the hinge the chapter swings on verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here's Daniel's prescription right here. What does the Daniel on this team have to say? Hey, repent. That's what Daniel has to say. Break off your sins. What a cool word for repentance. Break them off. Daniel doesn't say manage your sins. Daniel doesn't say cope with your sins, mitigate your sins. He says break them off. The elders a couple weeks ago got to pray for a precious saint. I, did, I should have asked him if I could tell a story, but I didn't, so I won't, won't use his name. But a precious saint who's suffering from a rare form of cancer, who's part of the church. And he said, the, uh, he asked his oncologist, will this new medicine help me manage my cancer. And the oncologist says, oncologists hate the word manage. We don't want the word manage. We don't like the word manage. We don't want to manage anything. We want to, we want to obliterate your cancer. That's what we want to do. We want to assassinate it. We want it to be killed and gone, eradicated. Oncologists like words like eradicated and obliterated, not managed. This is Daniel's word to Nebuchadnezzar. You need to obliterate your sin. Don't manage it, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't manage it. Destroy it. Assassinate it. Shoot at it. Break it off. That word for break it off, it's used in the Old Testament a couple places for breaking the neck of an animal. That's what you're supposed to do to your sin. Lay it out to die. This is the command. Judgment is coming, so repent. And you have to have room in your theology for both of these to be true. This is Jonah style. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh repents, which Jonah didn't say anything about, but that's implied. That's the asterisk footnote behind every prophetic indictment in the world. <laughs> you're going down, hell's a real place, you're on your way there, asterisk footnote, unless you repent. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, asterisk footnote, unless they repent. Which, remember what Jonah said, I knew you would do this, God. I knew it. <laughs> Typical God for giving people who repent. I just knew he would do it. This is what Daniel says. The vision had nothing about repentance in it, did it? There's no part of the dream that had anything about repentance, but Daniel knows the asterisks in the footnote. 
Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to graze like an animal, but implied in this is unless you repent. Notice what repentance looks like. Breaking the neck of your sins, taking the yoke off of the neck and throwing it away. How do you do that? By practicing righteousness. This is the old school put off, put on mentality. How do you put off sin? By putting on righteousness. You cannot hold fear and faith in the same hand at the same time. You can't do it. How do you put off fear? You pick up faith. That's what you do. How do you put off complaining? You put on praising. How do you put off worry? You put on trusting. How do you put off cussing? You put off speaking words that are encouraging. How do you put off stealing? You put on working and giving away. You cannot do both at the same time. And that's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. You want to take off lycanthropy? You want to take off your sin? Then practice righteousness. And then your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed Get rid of your sin by demonstrating mercy to the oppressed. There might be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. That's the footnote. You repent. And notice, Daniel was surrounded. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by the, the best enchanters, the best dream interpreters, the best wisdom of the day that money and power could buy. He had it all and he had no hope. The only hope he had was through Repentance. Fourthly, sin is forgiven by a sovereign and Trinitarian God. And time is getting away, but this is the fun part. Sin is forgiven by a sovereign Trinitarian God. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar comes away with after all this. I mean, what would the lesson be? Seven years eating grass. I don't know if you can even digest that, but he figured it out. Seven years doing that. And what is the lesson he gets? You see it up in verse 3. How great is God? His dominion endures from generation to generation. In contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's. How long is Nebuchadnezzar's dominion going to last? About five more minutes. (laughs) One more chapter is how long he's got. Not God's dominion. God's dominion does not come and go. Look at the end of the chapter. One of the greatest memory verses from Nebuchadnezzar. One of the most profound theological statements in all of the Bible about the sovereignty of God written by some pagan king converted to our Savior. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing. God does according to his will among the host of heaven. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God can do what he's going to do in heaven, he can certainly do what he's going to do with you. Among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You can never tell God you shouldn't have done that. This is written by a guy who was with the animals. You want to talk about an unfair punishment. And he says, no one will ever be able to tell God, why did you do this to me? He can't talk back to God. He made you. He can do whatever he wants to with you. This is Romans 9. He is the potter. You are the clay. Clay pots ought not speak back against the potter. That's Nebuchadnezzar. You think you're proud and mighty as an emperor? Ha! God's kingdom doesn't end. Yours does. So don't talk back to him. And I say Trinitarian. This is something that I'd never noticed until this week, reading this. Look back up when he addresses verse 8. Daniel, the end of verse 8. A little insight here. Daniel came before me. He was named Belshazzar after the name of my God. My God, Elohim. uh, It's the singular of Elohim. My God, singular. So Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, I worship one God, a God. 
But in Daniel, it's the spirit of the holy gods, Elohim, plural. So Nebuchadnezzar at this point is referring to Daniel's God in the plural. What in the world? Nebuchadnezzar is claiming he believes in the one God, whereas Daniel believes in Elohim is the plural verb of God, the plural word for God. Daniel has an Elohim. Daniel has a plural God. And you're ready to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You have that reverse, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the polytheist. You have emperor worship. Daniel believes in the Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai, Elohim, Adonai, Yihad, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. Yihad, one. You got it all backwards. Well, what did Nebuchadnezzar just see before he wrote this chapter? The fiery furnace with one like a son of God in the furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar's takeaway so far from this is that Daniel believes in a God who is in heaven, who has a son that comes to earth at some point. And here you have the Holy Spirit. He says, in who dwells the spirit of the holy gods. This is a full-on sovereign, you know that from verse 3 and the end of the chapter, Trinitarian God. Nebuchadnezzar has been a believer for all of 15 minutes here, and he understands a triune Father, Son, and Spirit that is really one God. We see that later on in the chapter, but here expressed in three distinct persons. You'd quibble with the theology. It's not right to call the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gods, plural. They're one God. They share one being. But again, Nebuchadnezzar, he's new to this. <laughs> Let's give him some slack. He's just, he's not, you know, again, he's just addressing this to Daniel here. He was the one who had the spirit of the holy gods. He's going to repeat it again in verse 9. El Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit, again, of the holy gods is in you, that no mystery is too difficult for you. I mean, the skeptic could say, oh, that's just a polytheistic phrase, that Daniel is smarter than all the enchanters. No, I think he's speaking here in light of seeing the sun, one like the son of God in the furnace, and now knowing that Daniel has spiritual insight that can only come from a divine person. Nebuchadnezzar understands how all of this works together. This becomes a powerful picture of salvation, a powerful picture of conversion. The sin wrecks your life, sin erodes your life, sin makes you like an animal and cuts you off from hope in this world. But the gospel is powerful enough to bring a bridge, to bring a hook, to bring the, the noose that brings you back from the woods. The gospel is powerful enough to bring the, in this case, mentally deranged person back. And it doesn't mean that when a, a mentally unstable person comes to faith in Christ, their mental illness goes away. Of course not. Nebuchadnezzar had a seven-year time limit put on here before he was converted. So seven years is going to end. That was going to happen. He did not have his mental illness take away because he came to faith in Christ. But it came as, as a blessing associated with it. It came now, he received it as a blessing. It's not a guarantee that if somebody comes to faith in Christ, mental illness flees, but it is a guarantee that when you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins, that only through repentance and confession can the power of sin be broken in someone's life. Lord, we're thankful that you are a forgiving God that reigns over the heavens and the earth and that no one can stay your hands no one can say to you, why did you do this? Why did you make me like this? Nobody can protest because all of us are made in your image and your likeness and your image and likeness is marred in us, of course, because of sin that we willingly embrace. So we're thankful for the grace that you've given us through Christ. Nebuchadnezzar here becomes a picture of sovereign salvation. He was unable to respond to the good news of Christ of the gospel, unable to mentally reason. We see in him a, a picture of how 
The gospel is strong enough to save even the most animalistic sinner. If Nebuchadnezzar was not beyond the reach of your saving arm, nobody is. If you can save a, a man who is insane and out of his mind and in the woods, you can save anyone. It sounds trite, Lord, but we confess to you, but before your grace, go us. Before your grace, we would be out of our minds. Before your grace, we could be roaming the streets. There's nothing in us, in our own virtue, that keeps us away from homelessness, that keeps us away from the, the psych ward. The power of depravity is in us as well. And yet, Lord, because of your grace and mercy that you've shown us through Christ, we're here tonight, as Jesus would say, clothed in our right minds. We're here tonight able to reason. We're here tonight able to put our eyes focused on you. And so that really is our prayer tonight, Lord. Our prayer tonight is that you would be the one that goes before us. Our prayer tonight is that you would be the one that captivates our minds. Keep our minds off of sin. Keep our minds off of the flesh. Keep our minds off of even the trivial things in this world. Help our vision be fully focused on you. You're the high king of heaven, and we worship you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.